This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon, this is Law and Behold. On The Bigger Picture, I'm Juliet Jacobs. In legal and political theory, an elected and representative legislature is the central pillar of a democratic system. One third of the articles of the Constitution of Malaysia require Parliament to perform a number of essential functions, such as the making of laws, scrutiny of executive policy, supervision of national finance and control of emergency powers. But is Parliament failing to live up to our expectation in other areas? What are some reforms needed? So today on the show, I'm joined by Professor Emeritus Dato Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi. He's the holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and the co-chair of the UM Malaysian Bar Constitutional Literacy, Literacy Initiative. Also with us today, Maha Balakrishnan. She's a parliamentary consultant and researcher. She's also a research fellow at the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network Asian Headquarters. We're going to discuss uh, what parliament is as an institution and some of the reforms needed. Welcome both of you. How are you today? Thank you. Thank you for having us here. Yes, thanks so much, Juliet. Absolute pleasure. Lovely to see uh, the both of you again. So um, we do want to talk about reforms, but of course, I think, you know, maybe to set uh, to, to set the interview first, Prof, maybe can I ask you to start uh, by outlining some of the uh, main functions of Parliament? Uh, yes, thank you very much. I'll speak primarily from the constitutional law point of view, though I, I know that Maha will be able to add uh, other colours nicer colors to the picture. Now, let me reiterate what you pointed out, that in our constitutional theory, 57 out of 183 articles of our constitution deal with uh, parliament's uh, various functions. I've outlined 11 of these. Very quickly, I'll just read um, the headings of each of the 11. Number one is that uh, the Devan Raya, the lower house, provides constitutional and political basis for the Yang Di Pertuanagong's discretionary decision to appoint a prime minister under Article 43, Clause 2. Uh, the Constitution says very clearly that the Yang Di Pertuanagong shall, in his discretion, appoint an MP from the Devan Rayat, who, in his judgment, is likely to command the confidence of a majority of the members of the Devan Rayat. So this means that it is the Devan Rayat that gives democratic legitimacy to the government in power. So that's number one. Number two, there is the legislative function of enacting, amending, and repealing of laws. This function should include, the, or does include, the amending of the constitution. It should also include, and I'm sad to say um, we pay no attention to this function, it should also include the scrutiny of delegated or subsidiary legislation. Number three, oversight of executive policy and performance to ensure accountability, answerability, and responsibility. Number four is control of national finance. This is a huge area. This should include oversight of financial policy, examination of the use of financial resources, optimally allocation of the annual budget, and review of the reports of the Auditor General. Number five is the Devan Rat represents the 222 constituencies. Number six, the Devan Nagara has the function of representing the 13 states. Each state has two senators um, and, and the federal territories. And uh, to give voice to minorities and marginalized groups 
who have very little chance of being elected to the Devan Rayat otherwise. Number seven, the Devan Rayat has the constituency function of serving uh, the constituencies. Number eight, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the um, Devan Rayat and Devan Nagara scrutinize the Yangdi Parthwanagongs emergency proclamation and emergency ordinances. And number nine is approving the election commission's proposals for new electoral boundaries. This is the function of the Devan Rayat alone. Number 10 is safeguarding Malay reserves. And number 11 is exercising parliamentary privileges. Now, each one of these is actually germane for a fuller discussion. I will just end by saying that except for the constituency function, all other functions are not being performed satisfactorily. And therefore, reform of the law and practice of parliament is absolutely necessary. Thank you. Okay, so we are going to talk about that, right? Um, the, I guess the legislative destiny uh, of the nation, as you said, right, lies in the hands of parliament. So, you know, uh, and I think, Prof, you also said this, you know, parliament merely legitimates, it does not legislate, <laughs> right? Am I quoting you correctly there? Yeah, yeah, but uh, do remember the Sedition Act, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I was happily quoting you there, wasn't I, Prof? Okay, um, but we will talk about uh, we will talk about some of the uh, the reforms in a little bit. Maha, if I could just turn to you now, right? So I think the Dewan Rakyat approved a motion to establish nine special select committees uh, for the Parliament. Um, but what seemed to be missing from that list, well, what was highlighted was that there was no special select committee on major public appointments, uh, and that was you know kind of flagged right as something that was quite significant. Mm-hmm. Can you help explain why? Right. So um, this new Dewan Rakyat, the 15th uh, Dewan Rakyat, if you will, following the 15th general election, this new Dewan Rakyat set up their committee system in March this year, okay. March 2023. Um, and yes, yes, absolutely. There isn't a specific uh, parliamentary special select committee or PSSE to oversee or to vet public appointments. Now, I can't speak to why uh, the government didn't decide to set one up this time around, although the PH government previously did. Um, But I do agree that uh, parliamentary vetting of major public offices, the appointments to major public offices, is useful. And I think it's especially important in our case. Uh, And this is because in Malaysia, political culture influences how the rules on public appointments are interpreted and applied. And unfortunately, it is it still remains an accepted political norm um, to treat many high positions in public bodies and government agencies uh, and government-linked entities as political appointments. Mm. Now, we, we need to change this mindset, uh, both within the bureaucracy, but also within public. You know, even public needs to understand that this is not okay. Um, but... These sorts of changes are not something that can be achieved overnight or simply by tightening the rules of appointment, although, of course, that's vital. Um, So I believe that an initial step, at least, that this government can take immediately to start moving in the right direction is to already subject certain political, sorry, certain public appointments to um, scrutiny or to vetting by day one Rakyat committees before those appointments are actually formally Um, approved, right? And how can this be achieved? Uh, This can be achieved simply by allowing the current crop of PSSEs to carry out this function. Mm -hmm. Now, 
what can we hope to achieve? What are some of the positive outcomes if we were to just allow these committees to do that? First of all, and the most obvious one is that it keeps the government accountable over the use of its powers of appointment, right? And in fact, simply knowing that a parliamentary committee is going to look into an appointment will already make the government more careful about the selection process. Now, secondly, there is even a benefit to the executive concerned because uh, simply by subjecting appointments to uh, parliamentary committee vetting doesn't necessarily mean that the public appointments can't include political considerations. It simply means that um, the appointing body will just have to be more mindful about the qualifications of their nominees. Yeah. Okay. And so the benefit to the executive, of course, is that if the if their nominee is vetted by the day one ragyat and approved, it helps legitim legitimize the appointment in the public eye. And at the same time, if any serious red flags are raised uh, during that vetting process, then at least uh, it's picked up beforehand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, and I think uh, these if if they were to just uh, allow this as an extension of the current functions of the. PSSCs that uh, currently exist. And what that means is each PSSC uh, has a purview over a certain number of ministries, certain policy areas. Then any appointments that come up within the entities or agencies linked to those ministries or those policy areas could be vetted by that committee concerned. And also uh, another thing, uh, Maha, that I just wanted to raise with you. Um, so this was earlier this year, actually, right? So I think it was in just in July. Um, Dewan Nagara President uh, Tan Sri Wan Junaidi Tunku Jaffa proposed reintroducing the Parliamentary Services Act 2023, right? And he said that that will then give Parliament the financial independence uh, and formation of a, a commissions for service, discipline and finance uh, while determining its own expenditure. Uh, why is this something that is also important or quite crucial? Well, the reasons are obvious. Firstly, uh, the concept here is to make Parliament's finances, Parliament's staffing and its administration independent from the federal government. And to do so will give effect to the concept of distribution of powers. Some people like to call it separation of powers, but it's, in, to my mind, it's more distribution of powers that uh, is a key principle of parliamentary democracy. And separating parliament from the executive also protects the functional autonomy of parliament mm -hmm. so that it can carry out its check and balance uh, function over government. And uh, also so that it can reduce the executive's ability to interfere with uh, parliament's work uh, and parliament's output. Um, so now, of course, before 1992, we had a Parliamentary Services Act. Uh, and that enabled, to, to a large extent, it enabled Parliament to run its own administration, to select its own staff, and to control its own expenditure. But that act was replaced, uh, was repealed in 1992, and uh, parliamentary affairs was then placed directly under the Prime Minister's Department. So currently what happens is that uh, the government tables Parliament's budget, and the Finance Ministry still has uh, the final say on expenditure allocations. Uh, Parliament's staff is still sourced from the public service where the JPA has a uh, final say over that. So the reforms that are being called for now is broadly to return the situation to the pre-1992 position, but with refinements. Um, and the idea then would be to model it along examples that already exist elsewhere, uh, where essentially what, what would happen is that um, Parliament would have control over its own staffing and financial decisions through the setting up of either a commission or parliamentary committees 
that have the delegated power to make these decisions. Okay, all right. Um, Prof, very quickly, anything you wanted to add before I... Yes, I think it's very important to have uh, specialized staff not subject to transfer at the orders of the Public Services Department because many of the functions of Parliament, for example, budget or law reform, which I'm going to propose, uh, should be a function of Parliament. These are specialized functions. You've got to have specialists, not just people who can be transferred uh, by a simple letter by the JPA. So special functions should require some specially trained and experienced officers. Okay. Let's just go for a quick break. When we come back, let's talk about those reforms that are needed. I'm speaking today to Professor Emeritus Dato Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and co-chair of the UM Malaysian Bar Constitutional Literacy Initiative. Also with us, Maha Balakrishnan, a parliamentary consultant and researcher. She's also a research fellow at the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network uh, Asian Headquarters. It's another episode of Law and & Behold, and we are discussing Parliament as an institution and also, more importantly, perhaps the reforms that are needed. We'll continue that discussion after this break. Keep it right here on Law & Behold on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Law and Behold on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me today are Maha Balakrishnan. She's a parliamentary consultant and researcher. She's a research fellow at the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network Asian Headquarters. Also with us today, Professor Emeritus Dato Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and co-chair of the UM Malaysian Bar Constitutional Literacy Initiative. It's another episode of Law and Behold where we want to get you up to speed on all, everything related to the federal constitution and your constitutional rights. Today, we're discussing Parliament uh, as an institution and the reforms needed. So, yes, um, before the break, you know, Prof uh, and Maha, you explained some things about, you know, what roles that uh, par- Parliament has. And, you know, now we want to talk about some of those huge reforms that are perhaps needed, right? I mean, our system, uh, Prof, you know, you said our our system of government is called a responsible government. Uh, the executive is supposed to be answerable and, and accountable to the elected legislature. But can this responsibility be enhanced through parliamentary reforms? Uh, I don't know. Would you like to go first, Prof, and answer that question? Sure. I'll, I'll look into this issue of uh, oversight of the executive by parliament. Uh, as you correctly mentioned, in our system of parliamentary government, also called responsible government, the executive is part of parliament and is required to answer questions, supply information and justify policies. In extreme circumstances, the Devan Rayat can even dismiss the government on a vote of no confidence. Uh, sadly, however, in actual practice, um, the responsibility is more um, theory than practice. Question time, daily question time is often a ritual exercise and evasion due to due to time constraints. Not all questions listed on the order paper are answered. In this respect, the order of questions frequently arouses the suspicion that controversial questions or embarrassing questions are deliberately placed towards the end of the order paper. Moreover, till GE 14, the prime minister was never subjecting himself to question time in Parliament, but now a, a reform has taken place. So I humbly propose the following reforms. First of all, the questions on the daily order paper uh, uh, to enforce over the oversight function. Procedures need to be developed to determine the order of questions, to allay the suspicion 
the controversial questions are placed towards the end and therefore they won't be answered. Uh, secondly, if questions are not reached, as they say, reached, there should be written replies within a specified time limit. Thirdly, very important, there should be departmental committees for each ministry. There should be a counterpart departmental committee. Earlier, you and Maha mentioned nine special select committees, but actually th these are welcome indeed. But in addition, there should be special departmental committees for each department. Perhaps to begin with, we could combine a few departments into one, but we need to proceed to a specialized select committee for each department. Then there should be scrutiny of executive apartments that was covered very well earlier. Then there should be power to punish for contempt, or rather there is a power to punish for contempt. If anyone refuses to appear before the committee or refuses to supply information, actually committees have the power to punish them. You may find it surprising. In Australia, ministers have been found guilty of contempt of the House for refusing to cooperate with committees. I think our parliamentary committees, wherever they exist, should assert themselves. Then, sadly, our standing orders of the Devan Rayat are inadequate on the issue of motion of no confidence. This motion of no confidence is implied in Article 43, Clause 4. Uh, however, the standing orders don't have any such provision. And I'm sad to report to you that many instances in the last uh, 10 years or so, motions of confidence were sought to be introduced, but the speaker refused to accept the motion. Uh, then I think opposition business. By opposition business, I mean uh, those who are, of course, not in the government, on the government benches. The opposition business must be allocated special time at least one hour a week. Uh, the problem today is this. Government business has priority. And opposition business, for example, opposition desire to introduce bills doesn't really uh, get the hearing in in the Devan Rayat. Then may I point out to you that I'm now coming to the end. Senators, uh, the Senate is subordinate to the Devan Rayat. But actually, Malaysia should activate Article 45, Clause 4 of the federal constitution, which enables parliament by law to increase the number of senators elected in each state from two to three and to provide for direct election of the senators by the electors. We have provision permitting this. We have not made use of it. And finally, this, uh, this suggestion has already been adopted. The largest party or coalition that does not form the government should be given recognition as the official opposition and supplied with administrative staff. Thank you. That's the, uh, those are the points about enforcing responsibility, though I will say more about the legislative function later on. Okay, sure. Uh, Maha, anything you want to respond to, Prof, before uh, you, know, you give your suggestions of reforms needed? Well, I think uh, Prof and I are of the same mind. Uh, I think many of us are about the reforms that are needed. I just want to take a step back and talk a little bit about what are really the goals? What are the goals here when we talk about reform? 
to me, I, I break it down to three general objectives. One is we want to give parliament, and particularly the day one rakyat as uh, the elected body, more functional autonomy, right? That's number one. Number two is to create opportunities within parliament, opportunity structures, as I like to term them, for parliamentarians to exercise their functions. It's not enough to have your powers set down in the constitution. They must be actualized through the rules and procedures and practices of the house. So that we need to improve on. And number three, uh, because we are a modern parliament, it is the 20, it is now the 21st century, um, both houses of parliament need to become more inclusive to the public so that the public can directly participate in the legislative process. And by doing so, hold both the government and parliamentarians accountable, right? Now, uh, in looking at these objectives, we also need to understand that there are many bad habits that we need to break because we have a long history of government dominance over the business and operations of parliament. Uh, there are a number of instances we can uh, point to in the past where that dominance has actually been exerted to hinder the exercise of parliamentarians' uh, powers and duties. Mm -hmm. So to my mind, this current government and this speaker must be bold enough to break that toxic legacy and you know, just move beyond the mindset that parliament needs permission from the executive in order to actualize their functions, in order to even uh, improve on its procedures, whether that that approval is seen as needing to emanate from uh, the prime minister's department or from the attorney general's chambers. We need to move away from that mindset. Um, so I think within that context then, uh, yes, there are several steps that I believe parliament can take almost immediately, especially the day one rakyat, um, without too much structural outlay, uh, which I believe will be catalysts for procedural uh, and behavioral change more importantly. Uh, so number one, and I agree with Prof on this, it's the management of the motions of confidence and no confidence. Now, a lot of uh, governments, I think, fear this because it may create instability. But actually, the opposite is true. If you regulate the process, you create rules and structures and uh, conditions for it, you can actually create more stability. Uh, number two is control over parliament's time and agenda. Now, uh, for a parliament, for a modern parliament, the, our parliament actually sits for very few days in the year. Yeah. Uh, the average over the last 20 years is only about 70 or 72 odd days or so. Uh, that's far too low and it's far too arbitrary. So we need to create uh, uh, rules in which we have fixed uh, terms or number of days for parliaments. And this then ties into the point that Prof made, uh, which I agree with. There needs to be ring-fenced opportunities to discuss private members' business, including private members' bills. Uh, and then coming back to the public and public inclusion. Now, there is actually a very long-standing procedure within all parliaments across the world uh, for that enables the public to bring petitions to parliament, to call for policy change, to raise issues of concern. We don't have that in the day one week yet. Mm -hmm. A procedure exists in paper, but not the proper um, SOPs uh, and guidelines in, so that that procedure can actually be actualized. We need to change that. Uh, so that public can bring up issues directly to parliament and almost compel parliament to debate these issues. Um, there are also improvements that need to be made to committees, parliamentary committees. Uh, Prof has touched on them. I agree that uh, the the power to compel evident uh, witnesses to um, contempt proceedings needs to be refined and improved. Um, and the final point I would make is digitalization. We must move beyond um, 
archaic ways of doing things, as we see now in Parliament. Uh, they need to introduce hybrid proceedings, especially for committee hearings. Uh, they need to make their data and information that comes out and is collected by Parliament uh, better available. And I'll tie this into one of the points that Prof made. Uh, you know, very few people actually know that all parliamentary questions that are posed in a day one rakyat get a response, mm. either on the floor of the House or through a written response. And that Parliament actually collates these responses. And now over the last several years, they've actually made them available online. But again, very few people actually realize this. And the information isn't actually easily manipulable as well. So uh, that's something that that uh, needs improvement. Okay, uh, Prof, anything you wanted to respond to from what Maha has oh, recommended? A lot. <laughs> a lot. I can add a lot. I fully agree with what she said. I just wanted to uh, clarif clarify one thing, that our discussion up to now on the improvement of the special select committee system, the PSC, is very important indeed. But I just want to point out, in addition to special select committees specializing in specific matters, let, let us say uh, uh, grievances or human rights, there is also a need for legislation committees. After each bill is introduced, after the second reading, or even before that, the bill should be committed to a legislation committee. Which legislation committee can invite outsiders, stakeholders to give their comments and feedback? So that's very important. Then may I suggest that there should be a special budget office set up as in Australia, whereby actually complicated budget, uh, uh, it's uh, very thick, very complicated uh, it should be possible to explain to the MPs in a simple way that what what would be the impact of this proposal of the government on such and such matter. Uh, we need an institute of parliamentary affairs. Uh, Juliet, the civil servants have Intan. Mm. The judiciary has ILCAP. What does parliament have? I think parliament needs an institute of parliamentary affairs where Maha should go and give some Agreed. <laughs> Give some training. <laughs> Agreed. Give some training. And perhaps, Ma, you could also invite me to give constitutional literacy training to them. <laughs> Prof, I think it should be a compulsory course for all MPs before <laughs> yes, they are sworn indeed, in, indeed. actually. <laughs> uh, and can I point out just one more thing? Uh, actually, there's so much more. The number of parliamentary days is shamefully low. In 2018, Parliament met for 50 days. Oh, sorry, Devan Rayat met for 50 days. Devan Nagara actually meets from 15 to 20 days only. So 2018, Devan Rayat met for 50 days. 2019, 68 days. 2020, 55 days. 2021, 54. 2022, 35. In 2020, it met for only one day in the first six months. One day, and that one day was just for two hours, basically to uh, uh, to listen to the Yangi Pertonagong speech. You know, in the UK, Parliament sits about 180 days plus in a year. Mm -hmm. So that's very, very important indeed. Uh, there are a lot of suggestions, of course. Um, let me just see. Uh, I, I, there should be a, no application of the Official Secrets Act to, Deva, to, to bills being introduced. At the moment, every bill is chopped with the word Sulit Tarhat. Oh. So 
you get to find out about the bill only when it is laid in parliament actually there should be in advance a green paper or a white paper as they call in the uk whereby the basic objects of the bill should be made known to the public for people uh, may i use maha's word to be able to raise a red flag and say no this one is not acceptable to us so there should be instead a freedom of information act not an official secret act in any case maha would you agree with that that even though there is an official secret act official secret act it does not apply in parliament legally it does not apply to parliamentary proceedings i absolutely agree with that uh, especially But, for for evidence before committees it should not be applied yeah actually members of parliament are immune from the rest of the law except the sedition act official yeah. secrets act doesn't apply to committee meetings auditor general's reports uh, uh parliamentary accounts committee but in practice they say oh, no 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 this is sulit tarhad etc so these are some very very important issues that actually need to be raised and uh, yes and one more just just one more um juliet caretaker no government to promote free and fair elections a remarkable innovation from bangladesh deserves our consideration in bangladesh once elections are called the prime minister has to resign and the president will then appoint an impartial retired or serving luminary to lead the country during the electoral contest okay now this is a beautiful proposal a beautiful provision uh, sadly uh, it didn't last in bangladesh for long because politics took over the uh, incumbent prime minister becomes the caretaker prime minister and has a lot of advantages and i think that's not fair because when elections are called um, there should be a neutral uh, position as far as the government is concerned right so these are some of the proposals uh, that could be added on to the very uh, useful list that maha presented to you mm-hmm. and maha um did you want to respond to anything or anything you wanted to add yes i just wanted to say that um i think let's not lose sight of the fact that since 2018 there have been so many improvements to parliament already and and a lot of this is also down uh, due to the change in mindsets of parliamentarians of parliamentary staff and even the public there is a growing expectation that parliament should do more mm. so we we should welcome that i i cannot imagine that we would have been here the three of us sitting down having this conversation 6 years ago correct yeah. right yeah. Uh, at this level um however i do think we need to be very careful about what these changes over these last 6 years mean and whether they can continue and will be continued the danger is many of them are not permanent the parliamentary select committee system that's been set up is temporary they have yet to make changes to the standing orders of the house or to any relevant acts in order to make sure that this sort of system lasts past this government that it will last past uh this election cycle right in order for that to happen the actual written rules need to be changed permanent committees need to be created that's mm-hmm. one example mm-hmm. the other example everyone uh has most people have welcomed uh the fact that prime minister anwar ibrahim has agreed to come and answer questions every tuesday yes. but again no changes to the rules to capture this to encapsulate this and make this a permanent feature 
right? So it's at his good graces that this is happening. And coming back to one of the points uh, that that um, Prof raised about parliamentary questions, this is another example I think that we need to be mindful of. How Parliament operates is is perhaps rather unique and. And it takes some understanding that while there are written rules, and that's key and very important, there are also parliamentary practices and conventions which are of equal importance. And often, parliamentary conventions trump the written rules. So the written rules may say one thing, but how things are actually done in practice will depend on convention. And the parliamentary uh, questioning process is one good example. Um, there are many mechanisms that have been put in place now to process parliamentary questions, to arrange them and order them, sequence them on the agenda, which question comes first, which question comes last. But a lot of these practices are not written down. They are unwritten practices, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore, they can be subject to abuse, they can be subject to immediate and quick change, right? Uh, Without uh, the ability for accountability. So, so it is important, uh, apart from all the reforms that we've suggested, to also discuss how those reforms are to be set in place, in what form, in permanent form, or do we continue putting in place uh, these temporary measures according to the will of the government of the day? I think Maha and Juliet and I should work on uh, proposals for amending the standing orders. <laughs> I'll join you, Ma. I'll join you in that endeavor. (laughs) Anytime. I will host you guys on radio anytime you want to discuss this. But, you know, all those recommendations that you made, right? I mean, would it require amendments to the constitution, for example? Would it uh, require enactments of any law? I mean, how how difficult would it be, I suppose, in layman's terms? No constitutional amendments would be necessary, in my view. Um, If you want to set up an institutional uh, reform, com- sorry, uh, in, uh, parliamentary affairs uh, 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 institution, I suppose budgetary changes will be needed. Sure. Budget will have to be allocated. But in my, in my view, most of these changes can be made by amending the standing orders. Or if you don't want to amend the standing orders and rely on conventions, those conventions should nevertheless be posited somewhere. They must be written down so people can refer to them. Just like in in Britain, much of the constitution is actually conventional, but Mm -hmm. it's it's available in print. It's not enacted, but it is nevertheless written down. But no constitutional changes are needed, really. Yes, I agree that I think for all the reforms we've discussed, uh, I don't believe the constitution necessarily needs to be amended, although if that's a possibility, then that is most welcomed. Uh, but it can be done without, uh, with amendments to the standing orders. And perhaps some acts, obviously, uh, the Houses of Parliament Privileges and Powers Act should be amended. Services, Parliamentary Services And the Parliamentary Services Act would, would of course, need to be amended. uh, Sorry, enacted. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, well, you know, that's been very informative. And I know that you guys have had to limit yourself. There are plenty other. You did ask, how long do we have? Unfortunately, not that long, but there's plenty of reforms there. But this is a good start. Um, Before I let the both of you go, um, any concluding message or any, yeah, you know, we're heading up to Merdeka as well. Any last message perhaps that you'd like to leave our listeners with and uh, our leaders with as well? Well, I just want to say this, that uh, when it comes to uh, reform of the law, reform of institutional practices, as Maha said earlier, uh, this is obviously an evolutionary process and it will take time. But what is very important actually is that general public perceptions need to be altered. Now, 
that obviously takes time. The public uh, is not so much interested in some of these reforms, but I think um, the media and citizens like Maha and NGOs, I think, should play the role in planting the seeds of some of these changes. Uh, we have to confess one thing. Everywhere in the world, the government does not act. It reacts to the felt necessities of the time. We've got to create these felt necessities. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. Amaha? I couldn't agree more with Prof that we need to create the necessities. And I think there's a lot of work uh, that has uh, that is being done yes. on the ground. Uh, I, I've, I participate in some of that as well to actually bring parliament and parliamentary opportunities home to those that uh, need them the most, to the stakeholders, to the advocates and policy advocates that, that fight on particular issues. Uh, there are mechanisms in parliament, um, such as they are even now, which can be utilised to take forward different issues, to, to seek information and data from government through parliamentary questions, for example, to bring important issues within the public uh, domain to the attention of parliamentarians through the committee systems process, for example, and also something called the special chamber. So there are opportunities available. And uh, I'm pleased to see that over the last few years, there is an increased level of take up. So we see a lot of CSOs and NGOs, think tanks and uh, different groups actually working with parliamentarians to raise issues in parliament, bring these issues up and get government response. So I do believe that we are creating a demand. We yes. are creating a demand for a stronger parliament. Um, it needs more time and it definitely also needs commitment from today's government uh, that they will create and strengthen these opportunity structures. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for the very enlightening conversation. I was speaking to Mahabalakrishnan, parliamentary consultant and researcher, research and also a research fellow at the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, Asian headquarters, and Professor Emeritus Dato Dr. Haji Shat Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and co-chair of the UN Malaysian Bar Constitutional Literacy Initiative. We were talking about parliament as an institution and reforms needed. And there are many more that we haven't even listed here today. We'll do a second episode, guys, definitely. <laughs> Uh, but if you miss any part of today's conversation, we can you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash learn. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Law & Behold on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.